The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In a world that can be challenging, and at times unpredictable, it's hard to find moments to focus on what you need. Join Stephanie James on The Spark as she guides you to use your inner flame to ignite your best life. As a best-selling author, psychotherapist, transformational life coach, and international show host, Stephanie is dedicated to helping you create a life that takes you, your goals, and your passions to the next level, so you can live a life that is fully lit up and fully alive. She believes that your life is meant to be a beautiful expression of the things that light you up. That by living your dreams, you give permission to others to do the same. Are you ready to feel alive and inspired to fuel your dreams and put a fire behind your desires? Let's ignite a spark in one another that will illuminate the world. The Spark with your host, Stephanie James, starts now. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James, and we are taking the spark and we are igniting it. So I hope wherever you are right now, that you can just pause for a moment and just drop from your head into your heart and just take a deep breath into your heart space as you join us here. Just let the rest of the world go. Let yourself be present in this moment and let's enjoy lighting the spark together. I am really thrilled today. I have with me Rabbi Rami Shapiro and Rabbi is the award-winning author of over 36 books on religion, spirituality, and recovery. He co-directs the One River Foundation, is a contributing editor at Spirituality and Health Magazine, and he hosts the podcast Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami and Conversations on the Edge. So, oh my gosh, what an honor to have you here as we're talking about your new book, Judaism Without Tribalism. Welcome, Rabbi Rami. My pleasure to be here, Stephanie. Thanks for inviting me. What a fascinating book. The the secondary title, and I have to, for the people that are watching this on video, I have to hold up the book. The secondary title of the rabbi's new book is Judaism Without Tribalism, A Guide to Being a Blessing to All the Peoples of the Earth. I love this title. So talk to us a little bit. First of all, for people that don't understand 
those concepts of tribe and tribalism. And then what does Judaism without tribalism mean? Okay, great. So I make a distinction between tribe and tribalism. Jews are a tribe. I don't have any problem being a member of a tribe. My problem is when the tribe becomes the tribe, the only tribe, the only true tribe, the only uh, group of value, and everything is measured against that. That's when tribal, that's when tribe slips into tribalism, when it becomes this all-encompassing ideology through which we view the world. So when Jews call themselves the chosen people, that to me is the purest example of tribalism, right? To say that we're tribe, who knows what the actual history is, but we have this uh, story we tell ourselves that we're all descended from Abraham and Sarah. And so we, we're just this extended family, this global family. Okay, so that's our tribe. When we then say that we were chosen by God, a God that I personally don't believe in, but that's another story. But we're chosen by God uh, from among all the people of the earth to receive this God's one and only revelation, the Torah, and to receive the deed to the promised land in perpetuity, regardless of who's living there. That to me is tribalism. It's, I mean, A, it's just narcissistic and, and I think patently false. So it's not that Jews are unique in this at all. You know, Christians believe that they are the ones who are saved, and not all Christians are saved. They fight about who's saved, you know, amongst themselves. But when Christians say, you know, Christians are a tribe, okay, they're followers of Christ. But when they say only Christians are saved, now they fall into tribalism. Muslims fall into tribalism. Hindus, you know, I mean, everyone can easily slip into tribalism. And you don't have to be religious to slip into tribalism. You see it in the United States among Republicans, especially the MAGA Republicans. It's a tribalistic mentality where they're the one true American and everyone else is false and fake and evil and demonic. So once you make that distinction between tribe and tribalism, then Judaism without tribalism is Judaism without the idolatry of believing that you're the one true chosen people, the idolatry of imagining that the world revolves around you, the idolatry of thinking that your religion is not simply unique in the sense that it, it's it reflects the history of the Jewish people, but unique in the sense that it's the only one that comes from God. You know, it's the only revealed tradition. When in fact, all religions are variations on the same theme in a sense, right? They, they're, you know, each religion is unique. It has its own flavor because it has its own history and it comes from its own cultural background, but they're all pointing in the same direction which becomes clear when you look at the mystics. I'm going on longer than I thought I would. Well, this is great. But when you look at the mystics of the world's religions, they're all telling you that's going in the same direction. And, the same, and that direction is the realization that you and I and everything in the universe, humans and otherwise, that everything in the universe is a manifesting of what the God I experience. I don't use the word belief when I talk about this God, but the God that you can actually experience 
that has no name, that belongs to no tribe, that doesn't have a religion, that is reality itself. And when you realize that, then the only way you can be in the world is as a blessing to all, the way the book puts it, you know, all the, the, the peoples of the earth, I think it says, the actual text that it comes from is Genesis 12, verse 3, where it says, you shall be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Families meaning not just human families, uh, but you know all the all the families of the earth. Whether you're talking about animals, or you're talking about plants, or whatever it is, when you realize the non-duality of the divine, your relationship to other beings is always one of blessing, of compassion, of justice, of love. It's unavoidable, and that's what the book is about: how to make a Judaism, how to free Judaism from its tribalistic and idolatrous uh, aspects to be what I think it was intended to be and what I think all religions are intended to be, a religion of justice, compassion, and love rooted in this notion of the non-dual deity that surpasses all of these religions. This is just so resonant with my heart, Rabbi. I love this. I really do feel like that's something that through as my, I have studied different world religions that I would say too, you know, that, that the religions, all the different religions are pointers to the truth. And so hearing you say that is just such an affirmation and, you know, speaking of that, it's all, you know, going towards this universal truth and in the book, as you say in the beginning, that one of the universal truths is that everything is God. Yeah. Can you that's speak the more about point. that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let, let me just nitpick a little bit. Religions point to themselves. Oh, yes. Yes. I hear you. Mystics point to this truth, whether they're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, you know, wh yeah. whatever tradition or, or scientists, I mean, will point to this truth. But if you're of that mystic bent, and we can define that if you like. But if you're of this mystic bent, you point toward this non-dual reality, this that God is everything. But religions themselves, uh, Jews, Judaism points toward Judaism, Christianity yeah, yeah, yeah. Toward Christianity. That's why, especially in the 21st century, don't read theologians, read mystics. Yeah. Don't look to the the professional. Uh, clergy class of your religion. Look toward the mystics of your religion. And, and you know it's time to do that because so many religions are trying to keep your myst the mystics from you. Now, I teach at a lot of churches and I mention the mystics of the whatever, you know, if it's Protestant mystics or Catholic mystics. And people look at me with like blank stares. I never heard of these people. I never heard of Julian of Norwich or uh, Hildegard of Bingen or um, Yaakov Burma, you know, never heard of these great Christian mystics. Well, it's not an accident. You never heard of them because the Christianity they reveal is not the Christianity of the organized religion to which you belong. And it's a threat to them. The clergy doesn't want you to hear that. And the same thing is true with the deep mysticism in, in Judaism and in Islam. Okay. So you wanted me to go deeper into this notion of Everything God, is God. That everything is that everything is God. So I don't know what else you can say about it. Well, well, and maybe Rabbi, actually, the 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 question is, and and you write about this in your book, is you know, then what is religion at its best? You know, we hear so many people that are 
saying, oh, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, because of part of what you're speaking about, how there is that, you, you put it as narcissism in religion, which, which is true. And thank you for making that distinction between the mystics and religion, because that's true. I mean, reading the different mystics and, you know, um, that is where that it goes beyond the religious doctrine of we are the chosen ones, whether it's Jews or Christians or Muslims, like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. So what is religion then at its best? I think religion at its best is a religion that, as you said earlier, is a finger pointing, you know, the, the way the Zen people put it, you know, there's a finger pointing toward the moon. And at its best, religion should be that finger. But mostly religions pretend to be the moon, right? So that's why I say they point to themselves. But it should be pointing to something that's beyond itself. And when it does that, it's, it always has to go to its mystics. But when it does that, then religions can speak together. Now, they can speak with one another because they realize that, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, etc. These are all dialects of a, of a language that, of a universal pointing, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Now, these are all different ways of pointing toward what is ultimately ineffable, the moon itself, the reality itself. And, and it's, you know, even, even the metaphor of the finger pointing toward the moon is wrong because it, it implies that I'm over here and the moon is over there and I'm pointing to something that's other than me. But it really isn't true. I mean, the, the divine reality we're talking about, and you don't even need an adjective divine, the reality we're talking about is all inclusive and includes you and I. There's just that whatever that is. Uh, you know, in Hinduism, we have the phrase, tat tvam asi, you are that. That's pretty close. But even, even that phrase posits a you that is that, when in fact, there's just the that, right? There's only <laughs> this one reality. And so I, I love the Hindu metaphor of the ocean and the wave. There's this infinite ocean, that manifests, you know, innumerable waves. You and I and everything else, sentient, non-sentient things, animate, inanimate, everything in the universe, from you know, the quantum energy to, to, to the most you know, cosmic thing, it's they're they're all waves of this infinite ocean. There's nothing to point at. You can even point at yourself in that sense, because it's all that oceanic reality. And religion at its best tries to get you to realize that. But again, religion is rarely at its, at its best. When people say they're spiritual but not religious, I, my sense is, because I, I think I understand what they mean, is that they reject the, the narcissism, the tribalism, the separatist tendencies of religion, the judgmentalism of religion, and they don't want anything to do with it. Because they know better. You know, when a religion says, you know, LGBTQAI plus, that's bad, you know? Well, if everything is God, then God manifests as gays, lesbian, trans, bi. I mean, it's just, it's all God, right? So you can't say that these people are other, because in a non dual reality, there is no other. 
So you, you reject it. If that's what my religion says, I reject it. So then I, so what do I say? So I'm spiritual. But then when they say they're spiritual, I don't know if there's any, and, and now I, I just don't know. It depends on who says it. But I don't know if there's any meaning to that word. Mm-hmm. Because for me, if I say I'm spiritual, in my understanding of the word spiritual, spiritual is, of, even though not literally grammatically, spiritual is a verb. Spirituality should be a verb. It's an action. My spirituality is an, is an embodied or an acted spirituality through contemplative practice and engagement in the world in certain ways. So it's not simply, oh, I feel spiritual because I don't. That's cheap. I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I spend time chanting and meditating and doing different kinds of things, and all with the goal. And of course that's wrong. <laughs> and I recognize it's wrong, all with the goal of realizing what I already am, right? So the fact that I have to realize it tells you I haven't really gotten it yet, right? Because ultimately, you shouldn't have to do anything because you're already it. But, you know, my ego gets in the way and says, no, you're not. No, you're not. So I have to do these exercises that gets the ego out of the way, when in fact, the ego is as much part of the divine happening as anything else. So the ultimate realization of it's all God, puts an end to everything, even the struggle against the things that are saying, I'm not God. You say, well, even that's part of God. Uh, So it gets a little messy when we talk about it. But it's very simple, clear, and even clean, you could say, when you experience it. Well, and also the beautiful thing that I'm hearing too is as we embrace everything as God. And I think that's one of the reasons that I, I, I brought that up in the beginning is, wow, we stop doing this us and them. I mean, how differently would we treat one another? How differently would we treat the planet? If everything, if we you know look at that tree and we say that tree is God, I want to protect it. I want to make sure that I'm being mindful and, and taking care of it. And so you know, if the animals are God and the earth is God, I mean, then all of a sudden things take on such a sacred realm. Right. And I just don't and, think we interact the same with it. And eventually you could also say the tree is me and I'm the tree. Yeah. So, you know, at, at some point you have to realize, or you, you do realize that if I'm chopping down the, the Amazon rainforest or the Brazilian rainforest, I'm killing myself because that's my source of oxygen. You know, we, we have this, Albert Einstein has this great phrase. He says that, that human beings are suffer from what he calls an optical delusion of consciousness that we, we see things as other as separate. And it gives us this delusion that we are in fact separate. When in fact, there is no separation. And then he doesn't go into this, but the Buddha does, Buddhism does. You know, the, 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 um, what Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master teaches, yeah. interbeing, that we're completely interconnected. I can't exist. I mean, no human can exist without um, green greens in the world, you know, things that take sunlight and produce oxygen, because I don't produce oxygen. The gases I produce, the trees need. The gases the trees produce, I need. So why 
do I imagine that the trees and I are separate, right? The tree is as integral to my survival as the, my lungs are, because my lungs need that oxygen that the trees produce. So why don't I know that? And Einstein says, because we are trapped in this, uh, this delusional consciousness. So again, to go back to the, your idea of religion at its best, religion at its best, and then I would say spirituality at its best, is the art of overcoming this delusion of consciousness or seeing through it uh, and realizing, no, it, it, there's no other, there's just us, and we're all interconnected. And then, just as you said, once you know that, you can only act as a blessing. Even if you say it's just enlightened self-interest. I'm taking, you know what? I don't care about you. I'm taking care of myself, but myself includes you. So I have to take care of you too. So beautiful. I, lo- I love this. I love this concept. So I, I want to go on to, to ask you then, because this, this feeds into part of what we were talking about with religions, certain religions, thinking that they have maybe a corner on the truth. And you, you speak about it uh, in the book as well, is what is a problem? What is the problem with having a personal, I'm doing air quotes here, a personal God? Yeah, I used to hate the idea of a personal God until I started having experiences of a personal God, right? So I, 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 was, I was convinced you know, and I grew up with a personal God, a God who chose the Jews. I mean, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home, but I outgrew that. And what I latched onto was, uh, I don't know what you call it, but I made a God out of a non-dual, of, out of non-dualism. I said, okay, God is, and I would say non-dual, which was wrong because that what I was doing saying, okay, non-dual is over here and dual is over here. And I reject the dualistic. Therefore, God is non-dual. And by non-dual, I meant completely impersonal, um, you know, no, uh, no way you can have a relationship with this God. And I was comfortable with that. I had a synagogue. I explained my theology to my, my people who joined my synagogue. Our, I rewrote the liturgy of my synagogue to reflect this, my, my theology. And I was very happy with it. <laughs> it, it just suited me. And then starting in the 90s, I guess, maybe late 80s, I don't, I never remember my own biography, but I started having encounters with the Divine Mother, started with, uh, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it was very unsettling. For, for a couple of reasons. One, it was Mary, the mother of Jesus. And yeah. I'm a rabbi. And I said, no, no, no. I mean, she's a Jewish woman and Jesus is a Jewish guy. But still, that's not what I'm supposed to be experiencing. Uh, but as the experiences deepened, she, I, I, you know, I, I learned intellectually, but I also experienced uh, on a different level. Um, I saw the divine feminine which is the archetype, but I, I experienced her uh, as Mary, uh, you know, not just the mother of Jesus, but in the Catholic tradition, they speak of her as Mary Theotokos, mother of God in the, in the, uh, the Greek. So she's, she's, you know, prior to, to the God concept, she's this divine feminine out of which we get all of our, of our, uh, all out of which the divine, the God ideas come. So I saw her as the mother of God, but then I saw her in, in, uh, as Kali. I experienced her as Kali and I experienced her 
and, and I shouldn't say past tense. I mean, I still have the experiences uh, as Shekhinah in, in Judaism, which is the presence of the divine. Um, I experience her as Chachma, which is, or, or Prajna in, in uh, Sanskrit. Chachma is Hebrew, the, or Sophia in Greek, the, the divine wisdom. But she was, I mean, she had a shape, she had a voice, she had a, not, not a single form. Sometimes she looked like the, um, the African-American woman who was the Oracle in the Matrix movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah sometimes yeah, yeah. she looked different, you know, different, you know, so it was because she was playing with my, the images in my head. I mean, you know, I know that it was, there was a psychological element there, but so her form changed, her voice changed, but it was always this divine mother figure. And like I said, it was very disconcerting. I, I tried to get rid of it. I mean, I really made some effort. Uh, I went to a number of people to get help, mm. not psychological help. I went because I figured this was not a psychological problem. This was a spiritual problem. I went to uh, my teacher, Sister Jose Habde, who was a deceased now, but uh, mm. I think she was a Franciscan nun and a, um, a, a Native American medicine woman. And she told me, forget it. Once this starts happening, you, you're stuck. There's nothing you can do and you have to just roll with it. And then I, I went to see, which didn't settle, suit me at all. I was very unhappy with that answer. Then I went to talk to my friend, Andrew Harvey, who's a deep devotee of the Divine Mother and all her forms. And I told him what was happening. And I said, this doesn't work for me. I'm a non-dualist. And that's when he broke things open for me because he said, you're not a non-dualist. You're a dualist. You think there's non-dual on one hand and the dual on the other hand. That's dualism, my brother. He says, that's not what you're, that's not non-dualism. He says, if God is truly non-dual, in other words, if everything is a manifesting of this undefinable reality, then God includes the dual. So if God is truly without, you know, if God transcends form, God includes form. And so you can experience, um, and, you know, I happen to be doing it through the divine feminine, but you can have an experience with Jesus, with Krishna, with, you know, whatever the, the deity is that your, I don't know, maybe your subconscious, your unconscious, whatever it is, is primed to, to experience if you have the experience at all and not let it become uh, a dualistic experience in the sense of, oh, I experience, I'm experiencing Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is the one and only true God. And you have to become a Christian and everyone else is going to hell. That's not what we're talking about. But he says, you can experience the divine mother and see her as, a, as a, an avatar of a, um, a manifesting of the greater non-dual that in Hinduism, they talk about Nirguna Brahman and Sadguna Brahman. So you have uh, God without form and God with form. And, and they're both part of the, the greater Brahman, the greater non-dual non reality. So he says, just like Sister Jose said, this is what's happening. So you go with it for as long as it happens. But it, it did enrich my life because I found that I had, what, squelched, maybe you'd say, repressed anyway, an aspect of myself that was really comfortable with having dialogue with the divine something that I just didn't think I needed, wanted, or was capable of. But she reached out, you know, and I don't want to make it 
miss me. I don't want to say, oh, God came and talked to me because I think it's the other way around. It's more psychological. But it was something that was a necessary part of my, my spiritual unfolding. So I have both experiences. Ultimately, I think she is part of the greater non-dual reality and not uh, a person that that everyone needs to follow because she's the one true, you know, deity. I don't know if that's making any sense. It is absolutely making sense. And it, it sounds like for you, your experience of the divine was just absolutely expanded. You know, that you, you had grown up with a narrow vision of, because of your religion, again, going back to that, you know, the one true God. And you know, I have to tell you, Rabbi, through my own experiences, in a, and I was raised Christian, but when I started moving into what we just talked about is spirituality and seeing the different truths and the religions and then going beyond that to the mystic side, I definitely also had those experiences in a Sophia circle where all of a sudden I'm experiencing Hathor or I'm experiencing Quan Yen. And I also had a beautiful experience with Mother Mary, who there was a part of me that that was really kind of in disbelief. I mean, I, I just kind of experienced the divine as this undefined yeah. entity. And so to actually have those experiences has been some of the most profound experiences of my life. And that's only been happening in the last few years. So I think, yeah, you know, so no matter not, where we're at. Yeah, it's not an either or. No. Yeah. And and no. if you if you do have them in the larger context of of the non-dual, that's fine. If you don't have them, that's also fine. I mean, it's not like I don't want people to hear this and say, oh no, now I've got to go and have an experience of Hathor. Doesn't no. that's not what we're saying. Yeah. But if it happens to you, you don't have to freak out the way I did and say, no, 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 we have to get rid of this. Yeah, exactly. Because I had to expand my belief system as well, because there was a part of me going, oh, this can't be real, you know, and and I didn't have the, it sounds like you had such a profound experience because it's going against so much of, you know, just how you'd lived your whole life and that we can be open to the divine. We can be yeah. open to it in its many forms as it, it, as it blesses us with those experiences and not to be afraid. Yeah. Well, part of my problem was the same, a similar kind of problem when that I, I run into when I teaching churches and, and the people in the pews were never taught the Christian mystics. I was never taught the Jewish divine feminine, you know, in all my years being raised in a synagogue or going to rabbinical school, nobody ever taught me about uh, the, the mystic aspects of the Shekhinah. The, the feminine presence of God. No one ever talked to me about, I mean, we, we say, you know, the Shabbat Sabbath is the Sabbath bride, but it's just something we sing and it goes right out. We don't even, you know, we don't mm-hmm. spend any time with it, but it, it's obviously a feminine phenomenon. Why is it feminine? When the rabbis, uh, ancient rabbis experienced the presence of God, they use this word Shekhinah, which is a feminine noun, when they heard the voice of God, and this is a deeply patriarchal society we're talking about, when they heard the voice of God, they didn't hear a male voice. They heard what they called a bat kol, B-A-T-K-O-L, literally the daughter's voice. Why would they hear a woman's voice 
when they were all men, what, what was going on there? And you could say psychologically, you could say whatever you want, however you want to understand it. The fact is, I was never taught how rich the feminine was in not just the mystic side of Judaism, but the rabbinic side of Judaism. It was simply ignored, hidden, suppressed, whatever you want to say. But I was never, I was never introduced to it. And uh, so it came to me raw and, and I didn't know what to do with it. And it took a long time before I discovered, um, I mean, I went to, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have help within the Jewish system. I got help from outside of it. And then I discovered it in the Bible and I discovered in, in, in Jewish texts. What a beautiful journey that you've been on, Rabbi. I, I'm so excited to continue this conversation. We've got to take a quick break right now. But when we come back, we're going to continue igniting the spark with Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Be right back. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome back to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. We are here talking with Rabbi Rami Shapiro, and we're talking about his amazing book and more, Judaism Without Tribalism. This has just been such a great conversation. And when I move back into the book, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about. So in chapter six, you talk about world healers. And you write about the real threat to Jewish survival, not being Jewish hatred or intermarriage, but Jews' own ignorance about why being a Jew matters. So why does being Jewish matter? And what is the mission of Judaism? I think that really is. I mean, I wrote it, so I obviously agree with it. But I think that really is the crux of the problem that Jews face. There's no point to it any longer. Or the point that we're given no longer makes sense. Oh, you know, Jews matter because we're the chosen people. Well, most Jews don't buy that, you know. But I think the mission of the Jew is laid out very succinctly in the Torah, in the first five books of Moses, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 3. So in verse 1, Abraham and Sarah, they're called Avram and Sarai there. Their names haven't been changed yet. But they're the first Jews. That's the idea. I mean, the, the term Jew is, isn't used because that has to do with Judea and they're not there yet. But anyway, that's the idea. They're, they're the original Jewish. They're the, our, our founding parents, right? And they're called by God in the story. And to me, it's all story. So it's, it's a legend. They're called by God to leave their place, and I'm going to come back to that, uh, and journey to somewhere that God will show them, though in the story, in that in the verse, it's, God doesn't provide them with a map. 
but with a method to get to this place, which is going to matter in a moment, in a moment, in order to be, and we mentioned this earlier in verse three, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So the purpose of being a Jew is to be a blessing. It's not unique to Jews necessarily. I'm not saying that, but that's a real reason to be Jewish. If the purpose of being a Jew is to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, the, the, the earth, the world, can't get enough of people whose, whose mission it is to be a blessing to other beings, human and otherwise. What makes Judaism unique, I don't know, maybe that's too strong, but we, what makes Judaism unique is the methodology that's laid out in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Genesis to become that blessing. So in verse one, God says, and, and the first two words are Hebrew. I'm going to leave them in Hebrew for a second. It says, lech lecha, from your land, from your kinfolk, from your parents' house to a place that I will show you, this little place that I will show you. The way most Bibles lay it out in English, or the way the Bible itself presumes this verse to, to be, you know, sort of understands this verse, is it's a physical journey uh, from point A to point B, you're going to the promised land, and now you're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, whatever. But the choice of language, this lech lecha, really challenges the whole, uh, that whole notion. Lech means to walk. Lecha means to yourself. So it's an inner journey. And the ancient rabbis tried to make this clear when they point out the, the way the Bible sets this up. So it says, go on this journey from your country, from your culture, from your parents' house to a place that I will show you. And they said, this is backwards. If you were actually taking a physical journey from point A to point B, the first thing you'd leave is your parents' house. You go out the door, bye mom, bye dad, and you're off. Then you'd leave your kinfolk, your culture, your neighborhood, your, you know, right? And then the last thing you'd leave would be your country because that's the biggest. And then you cross the boundary and you go somewhere else. So they asked the question, why does the Bible put it in, the, in reverse order? And their answer is, based on this notion of journey into yourself, is that this is a psycho-spiritual journey of stripping yourself from the conditioning of X, Y, and Z, and the Bible lists the conditions in order of difficulty. So the easiest condition to leave is the condition of nationality. All right, I'm an American. It's not too difficult to get rid of that. The next most difficult is my culture. And then the third most difficult is the stuff my parents told me that I took as true, right? But that's the stuff you really go to, to therapy for because, oh, my dad and my mom and... But you can add to these all the other layers of conditioning, your race, your ethnicity, your religion, your gender, your sexuality. I mean, all the things that condition us to be the person we imagine ourselves to be. So if you take it in, in a, not in the, in the um, ancient uh, men, the mindset of the people who wrote the thing, you know, thousands of years ago, but if you take it in the contemporary mindset, Genesis 12, 1 is saying, God which is reality, reality calls you to free yourself from all conditioning and to come to a state of radical liberation where you realize that all this conditioning was imposed upon you 
keeping you from realizing your own divinity ultimately. And so, so the, the, the spiritual practice is one of stripping away all this conditioning, arriving at this mental state of radical liberation from which you then engage life as a blessing to all the families of the earth. That to me is the Torah's message of what, what Judaism is, the stripping away of all conditioning, and what a Jew is supposed to be, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. If I can just take it one step further, this was lost right away, but thousand, couple, you know, thousand something years later, you get a Rabbi Hillel at the end of, uh, like in the 10th century BCE, or 10, 10, not 10th century, the year 10, you know, BCE, right, right at the end of the, uh, before the Christian era, or before the common era. And uh, a Roman soldier comes to Rabbi Hillel. And he says to Rabbi Hillel, I want to convert to Judaism, but I need you to teach me everything I need to know about Judaism while I stand on one foot. And so Hillel, rather than quote, you know, what I just did, Genesis 12, 1, uh, Hillel simply says to him, what is hateful to you, don't do to anybody else. That is the entire Torah. Everything else, now, this is already a thousand years of, of, of uh, Jewish thinking and writing and practice, it says everything else is commentary on what is now Hillel's golden rule, what's hateful to you, don't do to anyone else. Go study the commentary. Go look at all of our books, all of our history, all of our holidays, and read them in tune with or in, a, in, a line, in alignment with the golden rule. That's what it is to be a Jew. It's just another way, I think, of saying the same thing, though Hillel leaves out what Genesis makes primary, and that's the spiritual stripping away of the conditioning. I think you have to do both. I think we can start with Hillel because that's just easier. I can, I can take as my Jewish grounding what's hateful to me, I won't do to anyone else. But then on a deeper level, I need to do the conditioning work. Uh, you know, what in Hindu, Hinduism we call neti neti, not this, not that, take it away, take it away. Or, or in Christianity, we call the apophatic, the via negativa, stripping away all these non-essentials. Every tradition, every religion has that stripping away process. But, you know, so in Judaism, this, this um, moving inward and, and letting go of all these conditioning factors until you get to your truest nature, which is the divine. Both of those things. And, and for some of us, we have to start with the golden rule, and then we take up the stripping away. For some of us, we start with the stripping away, and we end up with the golden rule. However you do it, that's what Judaism is. And that's why it's necessary in the world, because it's just a path to this divine awakening and this uh, holy way of living by being a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is so beautiful. Yeah, I, I got the image, you know, almost of the, the caterpillar that then turns into the butterfly and that there's this actual, a girlfriend of mine, I love her analogy because she talks about actually the process of becoming the butterfly. It's not that the, that the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and then boom is a butterfly that it actually dissolves, that it becomes 
you know, for lack of a better word, just like goo. So that's that messy part where it's literally dissolving all the old parts of itself. It no longer resembles anything like a caterpillar. And then what's born is something incredibly beautiful and, and different. And, and that's the image I got as you were sharing that. Yeah. But where, where can you find your official clergy who's willing to help you strip away your official religious identities, right? Yeah. You know, rabbis aren't trained to help you become goo, right? <laughs> right? right? It's not how it works. It's not how it works. So I think, and, and I'm over general, general, I'm generalizing here, but spiritual directors oftentimes are ready for that um, or, or certain kinds of, of mystics. I mean, I, the people that I, I mean, some of them are dead, <laughs> but the, the people that I studied with when they were alive, Father Thomas Keating, Reb Zalman, Shakhtar Shalomi, um, or people who, were, who I only studied with from their books, like Ramana Maharshi and Nisargadatta Maharaj, these were people who knew the truth of uh, having all these conditions taken away and, and discovering you're just a manifesting of this divine energy and uh, because it's infinite, it manifests in, in, in infinite ways. You're unique, you're precious, but you're still just the divine, the same divine thing. And uh, whether you're at the caterpillar or the butterfly, you're still God. Can you realize that? And some of us can, some of us can't, uh, and some of us do to one degree or another. But that's the goal of all of these religions at their best. And I'm, I'm hearing, too, the importance of maybe finding someone who can be that spiritual mentor so. that can hold that space for you. Right. I think uh, some people can do this on their own. Some people can do it by reading conversations. Uh, you know, when, when Krishnamurti has dialogues with people, when Sargadatta Maharaj or Ramana Maharshi or Ramesh Balkazar have conversations with people, and these conversations are uh, printed in books. You might be able, if you're primed, if you're ready, you might be able to read those conversations and bam, it just clicks. Some people need to be with other people who have done it. But ultimately, you can't do it. I mean, I, I think it's important we, we say this. It's an act of grace, right? You don't do this. Father Thomas Keating, who I studied with for decades, Father Thomas used to say, you can prime the pump, I'm paraphrasing, you can prime the pump, but you can't make the water flow. You can prepare yourself for grace, but grace is grace. It just comes or it doesn't. Um, and then from the non-dual point of view, even if it doesn't, that's also part of the whole divine you know, reality. So, um, but it's not, it's not an act of will. You can't will yourself into this awareness. It just comes. Now, I think, because of my work in 12-step, that 12-step is a powerful tool for this kind of awakening. Because 12-step, you know, one of the things, I don't know if you want to go in this direction, but this is one, of the, one of the challenges I find when I go to meeting or, or um, when I talk to people who are in 12-step programs, they've adopted the the language of a higher power. But if you read the big book, Bill W's uh, big book mm -hmm. of Alcoholics Anonymous, he talks about a greater power. And those two things are very different. 
A higher power is dualistic. I'm here. I'm broken. I'm an addict. Help, help. And then the higher power comes and helps me. But a greater power is something that surrounds me, that permeates me. This is Jesus telling us that the kingdom of God is within you and without you. Uh, this is the, what the mystics are telling you when they tell you that God is everything, right? I'm part of a greater power, not a higher power. I don't have to ask God to come down and save me. I have to realize my true nature is part of this greater reality that uh, is, is free from addiction or addiction is part of me, but only this tiny little part and I'm much, I'm much bigger. So 12-step can be a a very powerful program for realizing the same non-duality that the mystics of other religions are talking about. You know, and I, I so appreciate you sharing that perspective. I've had that experience with my daughter who was um, an addict and alcoholic. Uh, we struggled with that for about 10 years and seeing her now almost six years clean and sober and how she came to that at first and her first understanding. I have to share this with you because it was just, we laughed so hard because she had no concept of God or a higher power, even though she'd been brought up, you know, really in, I would say an eclectic spiritual um, home, but she, she said, you know, mom, my only higher power I can reach to right now is her favorite cartoon which was adventure time. And it was a specific dog that she loved in adventure time. And she's like, that's what my higher power is right now. That's what I have to connect to. And the journey to watch her as she has become now just such a leader and such a, an, a powerful person in those, she still attends those 12 step meetings. And she has become just a sponsor for so many young women watching her then embody that then as her truth and it's no longer separate and it's no longer the cartoon dog either but but to watch that beautiful process happen and i think it has happened through those 12 steps yeah yeah i i mean the cartoon dog is really in a sense no different than krishna or kali or jesus or or anything else right it's it's whatever whatever manifesting of the absolute divine speaks to you at the moment in, in Hinduism, they, you know, there's, there's the four yogas um, besides Hatha yoga, physical yoga, but the, the classical yogas of, of um, uh, karma yoga, the yoga of service and bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion, jhana yoga, the yoga of, of contemplation or study, and then Raja yoga, the yoga of meditation. And in bhakti yoga, you choose, in a sense, your 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 divinity, the, the God that that works for you, and you devote your life to Krishna or to Kali or to you know Saraswati or whoever it is, and she becomes your uh, focal point for all of your devotion. But in the end, you see. Um, uh, you know, Shakti or or whoever whoever your focal whoever she is, you see her everywhere as everything. When you truly are a, are a bhakti yogi uh, or a bhakta, you you, you the, the divine. It's just like we were saying before: the divine is everything. So so you see everyone as Kali. So everyone becomes the cartoon dog. <laughs> it's the same thing <laughs> when you when you truly go through that doorway. 
Uh, if you make an icon or an idol of the cartoon dog, then you never get past the cartoon dog. Then you don't go through the doorway. Then you just worship the dog or you worship the idol or you worship Kali and you never realize Kali as your true nature or the nature of all things. Um, so there's, you know, there's, it, but if you're truly, you know, involved in that practice, it it always leads you to the greater non-duality. Uh, and again, some people need that, some people don't. And the beautiful part of, you know, embodying, if you will, the cartoon dog, and then seeing, as you said, the cartoon dog in everyone. Yeah. What a beautiful practice. You know, I, I love that that's what we're talking about. And we only have time for one more question. I have so many more written. <laughs> but, so what is your hope for Judaism evolving beyond tribalism and its effect on the world? I don't usually speak in terms of hope. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what to hope for. My my yeah, okay, but my my work. Let's You're, do it. Let's okay. let's do this way. Um there was a point in my life where I wanted to give up on Judaism. I said, you know, I'm just done. It's never gonna change. It certainly isn't gonna change in the direction I think it ought to change, but I can't give up. It's it's just it's in my DNA. I just can't give up on it. So I keep working with the same, the same material over and over and over again. So right now, uh, I'm working with my friend Frank Levy, who has been my partner in uh, the One River Foundation and now our new thing called the One Foot Judaism Academy. Uh, our, our work is in trying to put together a program to teach the, the Hillel piece that we talked about earlier. Uh, to get people to realize that the, the the heart of the external way of being a Jew is living Hillel's understanding of Judaism as what is hateful to you, don't do to somebody else, everything else, all of Judaism is commentary. Now go engage with the commentary as a way of deepening your understanding of and your living of the golden rule. And then we added to that because, as I said earlier, we need that spiritual dimension there's a rabbi who came a couple of centuries after Hillel. He's a fourth century Talmudic sage, a guy named Abaye. And Abaye had this, I don't know, revelation or something, that there are always 36 human beings awake to Shekhinah on the planet, living as a blessing to all the families of the earth. And he doesn't talk about how you got to be that, but Genesis 1 does, you know, stripping away all your conditioning. So in our program, we teach the golden rule aspect of Judaism, and then we teach ways of awakening to Shekhinah, ways of stripping away your conditioning and realizing the divine manifesting in, with, and as all reality. And if, if you're going to use the word hope, my hope is some people, you know, 36 is what Abaye said, that there'll be a small group of people who find this compelling to find this understanding of Judaism compelling and we'll take it on and share it with their friends. And, you know, I'm not trying to start a movement. I'm not trying to start a school, certainly not trying to start a denomination. I'm in my seventies. I'm not interested in any of that. I'm interested in, in reaching out to whomever might resonate with this and, and take it forward. Uh, and we're going to start in a few months um, to train people, not just in the ideas of Hillel and Abaye and the practices that go with it, but to train them in how to teach other people who might want to do it in an informal, in an informal way, just to see if we could 
rekindle that um, deep spiritual liberation and golden rule spirit that I think is at the heart of Judaism. So that's where I hope this is going. Yes. Oh my gosh. So beautiful. And Rabbi, how can people find your book and how can they get a hold of you, find out more about what you're doing? Well, you know, the book, you can go to your local independent bookstore and if they have it, great. If they don't, they can order it. If you don't have access to an independent bookstore, you can go to amazon.com and you can always find out what I'm doing at uh, my personal website is uh, rabbirami.com or my uh, organization is called One River Foundation. You can go to oneriverfoundation.org and that links you to my work in perennial wisdom, which we really didn't talk about at all, but it's that mystic stuff we were talking about. Yes. Uh, and in uh, the, the one foot Judaism material. Wonderful. So as we're wrapping up, Rabbi Rami, what, what is the essential message that you'd like to leave with the audience? Very simple. It's all God. <laughs> That's the message. If we could get that, we wouldn't have any of the problems we've got. So true. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for this wonderful conversation and for sharing just all of your wisdom and, and these beautiful concepts and truths with us. Stephanie, it really was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. You have been listening to Igniting the Spark with Stephanie James. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast platforms. Make sure you subscribe and receive every episode. For more information about this show, my books, films, and events, go to stephaniejames.world and ignite your best life. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, Lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.